all we have to offer you, all we have to offer you is a resurrected king. That's it. If you're here for the first time, I ain't got any money on me. Okay. I don't have any silver or gold, but we have the pearl of great price. And we firmly believe that Christ lives and he reigns. And because he is alive, we who are in him are already alive. Okay? And so that's why I say all we have to offer you is a resurrected king. Hallelujah. 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 Welcome to Windsor Road. And uh, it's just wonderful uh, to be able to worship with people that I love, with our church family. And, um, and if you don't have a church family, I want this to be your church family because this church family believes that the greatest thing we have to offer is the resurrected king. Okay, so welcome, welcome to the church. All right. Um, so we're in a series on emotions. Talk about emotions, right? Uh, we're in a series on emotions, and um, I read an article this week that just really resonated with me. It's titled, Should Pastors Admit They Struggle with Depression? Huh. Here's part of that article. The pastor wrote, after I first mentioned in public that I take antidepressant medication, a church member responded, well, I never would have guessed that. The pastor said that he had all, always assumed that his issues were fairly obvious. He said, I was the one who spent my days, not to mention long nights, on the shadow side of the ministry mask. He said, it simply hadn't occurred to me how effective my mask was. Nor had it occurred to me that pastors being open about mental health struggles could have a positive effect. It seems like ministers shouldn't get depressed, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus is sufficient. He's risen. He is indeed. But none of that prevents illness of the mind. If it did, we'd have to call into question the spiritual state of King David, the prophets Elijah and Jeremiah, and perhaps even the Apostle Paul. Pastors live in the same world as those we serve. Why should you and I be any different? In fact, we might expect the proportion of pastors to be higher than the general population. Church ministry, for all its rewards and joys, is often lonely, stressful, and caged by unreal expectations. Pastoral work is never done. It's relentless. We engage with people in times of crisis. We're not perfect or omnicompetent, nor endowed with limitless stamina, so we struggle. But because of a, because of a prevailing stigma, perhaps within the pastor himself or perhaps within a church family. Pastors just don't want people to know what they're dealing with because they often associate negative emotions with spiritual deficiency. Wow. 
And, you know, it's a dilemma, isn't it? Because when you're talking about emotions and you're talking about negative emotions, you know, the challenge is neither underemphasizing those emotions or overemphasizing those emotions, but rather situating them, locating them, you know, in a place where, where they sit beneath the sovereignty of a God who reigns over all, and yet they're in a place where you can cry out to that sovereign God too. Which kind of brings me to the question for today. What do we do with our emotions? Well, you know, so when I'm feeling, what, what do I need to do with those feelings? And Psalm 77 gives us an answer to that question. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Psalms. Psalm 77. You'll find that on page 488 of your church Bibles. I don't know if there is a, if there's a more psychologically, spiritually, emotionally sound library of literature than the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, we, we see the significance of emotions, and in the Psalms, we see the sovereignty of God. And Psalm 77 is a psalm that answers this question, what do I do with how I'm feeling? Um, it says, to the choir master, according to Jedithon, and then it says, a psalm of Asaph. A psalm of Asaph. Who was Asaph? Well, 2 Chronicles 5 tells us that Asaph was one of the worship ministers in uh, the, the time of the tabernacle and later the temple with Solomon. So, so Asaph could very well have been in somewhat of a situation of what Beth was just in here, leading God's people in worship. And Psalm 77 served as lyrics to the worship set. We just sang a set of worship lyrics, did we not? And Psalm 77 would have been one of the songs in the playlist. Okay? Now I want you to think about that as I read these verses. That's very important. Psalm 77, 1 through 20. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And then that word in the italics, salah, it means pause. It means think about this. All right? 
And then the psalm continues. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. Now think about that, especially with the lyrics that we just sang here. And Asaph's not playing around, is he? I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Can you imagine all of us singing that? And then me coming up and saying, welcome to Windsor Road Christian Church. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Again, you see? There's pause. And then I, I'm going to read the footnote. Verse 10. Then I said, this is my grief, that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Let's keep reading. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? So there's been a shift, hasn't there? We're going to talk about that. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. Pause. Think about that. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. We're going back to Exodus, aren't we? The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is God's word. So do you see what's going on here in these verses? Psalm 77 acknowledges the reality of both positive and negative emotions. And Psalm 77 urges us to situate our emotions in the promises of God and in the presence of his people. And I think it's the latter part of that that's the scariest, right? Because we, you know, we, 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 we know how God's going to, or we maybe have a better idea of how God is going to treat us with our vulnerability. But, but you know, how are you going to treat me with my vulnerability? What's going to happen there? See? And uh, this psalm tells us what we need to do with how we feel. And this is... This is really important as I'm looking out over our congregation here. We, we, we have responsibility over and with and to 
you know, others in our life, whether that's home or whether that's at work or whether that's the folks that we uh, supervise. Or... And with that in mind, I, I give you two quotes from a pastor named Peter Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Leadership. But here's the first quote. It's up here. It says, we lead more out of who we are than out of what we do. If we fail to recognize that who we are on the inside informs every aspect of our leadership, we'll do damage to ourselves and to those we lead. So what's going on on the inside? See. And then the second quote, Mature spiritual leadership is forged in the crucible of difficult conversations, the pressure of conflicted relationships, the pain of setbacks, and dark nights of the soul. So as we think about these verses, I want us to consider you know, how God wants emotionally healthy people to act on their feelings, all right? What do I do with my feelings? Psalm 77 tells us. Now, before I get into this psalm, let's just talk about two temptations of what not to do, two, two items that we want to avoid when it comes to expressing our emotions and after we talk about what not to do, then we'll get into the psalm. And I want to give you a word, a verb, that I hope will help. Um, and then I'll give some practical application points. So let's talk about what not to do, what to do, and then some practical application points. What not to do. Two temptations. I want to give you two fictional characters that represent temptations on, you know, that we want to try to avoid in terms of you know, acting and expressing on our emotions. Let's go to the first. You know, anybody know who this is? You already know. You, you've never seen the person's face, but you know, what, you know who that is. Who is that? That's the Tasmanian devil. That's who that is. That's the Tasmanian. So you already get the idea of what not to do. Spew. Spew emotions. Taz, Taz thinks that emotions are the most important thing about himself. Taz comes in, and you've never seen Taz walk. You see Taz the tornado, right? And, and you just see what's left after Taz is gone. Because Taz makes an idol out of his emotions. Taz thinks that the highest good in life is for him to just express himself and just feel good. Just feel good. And in many ways, this is the dominant gospel in American culture. It is the, it's the gospel of American authenticity. Authenticity. Now, uh, let's define authenticity, okay? Let's define authenticity. How do you define authenticity? Authenticity used to be tied to moral integrity. Authenticity used to be tied to absolute truth, like the truth of Scripture. Um, but today, authenticity is tied and pegged to expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And, and as such, it gets pitted against conformity. Conf and especially conformity 
to external revealed truth as we find in the Word of God. So, American cultural authenticity of expressive individualism says that, you know, you, to, to act in a way contrary to your emotions is the ultimate form of hypocrisy. Because you've got to be your authentic self. You've got to be you, you be you. Find yourself, be true to yourself. So we've made that definition of authenticity the holy grail. But here's the deal. You are not your emotions. And your emotions do not reveal everything about you. Our emotions occur in a sinful, broken, fallen world. A world that is stained by sin. Oh, and by the way, we're sinners. We're broken. We're fallen. So that means that our emotions are not infallible. They, they need to be examined and tested and analyzed and critiqued. Yes, God cares about our feelings. Yes. The emotional life is a gift from God to move us to Christ. That's, what we've, that's how we've defined emotions in this series. But the problem is that when we put emotions or feelings on center stage and, and make, make that the thing, well, then we, we end up you know, looking for experiences. And so we become experienced junkies. And, and one Christian put it this way. The Christian said, I felt an endless pressure at church to reach the next level, to have the next great emotional experience. And then the Christian said, it was exhausting. Anybody there? Anybody somehow either you're, you're sensing that pressure from within or maybe you're hearing it from without? We, let's do better than the Tasmanian devil, okay? And, of course, there was, you know, well, then I'm just not going to express any emotions at all. Well, now just hold on, relax, okay? That takes us to our second character, <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> Mr. Spock, you already know what that other extreme is, Right? So, so whereas Taz, Taz wants to spew, Spock stuffs. And, and uh, someone called it stiff upper lipism. So, and, and you know, in Star Trek, Spock is portrayed as an improvement. You, right? You know that, right? Spock is portrayed as the next step in human evolution. Logic. Incapable of emotions, right? But every now and then, Spock gets conflicted because he's half human, okay? And so he, you know, he breaks out emotionally. He smiles, Jim, you're alive. And then he catches himself like he sinned or something, okay? 
So, so sadly, again, Christian culture can subtly endorse this in the name of the Holy Spirit's fruit self-control. You know, well, that means no emotions, no, no, you've got to be in control. If God is sovereign, works all things out for the good, and then the only reason to feel bad, the only reason you feel bad is if you just don't have enough faith. Well, that's just not in the scriptures. Uh, Luke twenty two forty four. The night before Jesus died, and being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then in a parallel passage to this, Matthew twenty six thirty eight, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It doesn't sound like he's from Vulcan. And then notice what Jesus said. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus needed company. He requested company. The company of his disciples the night before. So, so the two temptations that we really want to avoid is spewing and stuffing. Those, those don't help. Well, then let's get to what does help, and that's Psalm 77. What are we to do with how we feel? Psalm 77 offers a better way. Here's the verb that I want to give you. It's the word engage. Engage. Engage your emotions before God and his people. Now, engage does not mean change. To engage means to slow down, because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but your emotions like to step on the gas. Your emotions like to accelerate. But to engage means to slow down, identify what your emotions are, examine what they are, evaluate which parts of your emotions have a godly trajectory and which part of your emotions have a toxic trajectory. And then based on that, act in wisdom. So, so against the extremes we've mentioned, Psalm tells us to bring our emotions into the presence of the God who is. And, and don't miss this because you're going to bring your emotions somewhere. You're going to take them somewhere. And Asaph urges us to bring our emotions, our highs and lows, ups and downs, into this room here. The company of worship. There is no better place, no safer place for you with your emotions than in the community of God's redeemed. And that means discarding the notion that I have to have it all together when I come into this place. Engage your emotions before God and God's people. Asaph confronts the isolating shame. The notion that no one else could feel this. Because it's in isolation. That's where the enemy thrives. James says, uh, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So, James says it is in vulnerability. The, the, the confession of your hurts and your habits and your hang-ups before a spirit-filled believer and you pray together 
for healing and health. Because you see, discipleship is not just learning biblical data. It's truth in community. And Asaph refuses to pretend. So he says, verse 1, I cry aloud to God. I cry aloud to God. Who taught you to cry? Nobody taught you to cry. Everybody started the same way. Right? So let's just, let's just understand that. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. He's not going to pretend. Verse 3 says, it does not say, when I remember God, I'm inspired. What's it say? When I remember God, I moan. He's down. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I, I can't speak. And then notice the assumption behind the questions in verses 7 through 9. There's, there's, uh, there's six questions. Right? Will the Lord spurn forever? Will the Lord never again be favorable? Six questions there in verses 7 through 9. And behind the questions are assumptions. The Lord has spurned. His love has ceased. He has forgotten to be gracious. I mean, that's, that's just where Asaph is right now. And then the Salah, pause, think about this. And then this very vulnerable verse. I mean, he's articulating what we're thinking. And it's important to articulate it because it's part of the process. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. God's changed the terms. So, so Asaph wonders if God has duped him. God, I thought we had a deal. You know, I go to church, I give, I serve, I pray, I'll read my Bible. But you better come through. Better heal my wife, my marriage, my child, my job. And it's right here, church family, that Asaph learns that God is free. And he is no butler. And he is not locked into a quid pro quo relationship. He will not be figured out. And he does not have to explain himself. And Asaph's refusal to believe in him will not make him go away. Here, Asaph meets the God who is. So, so. Verse 10 is a pivotal verse. Verse 10 is both the loss of faith and an open door to real faith, true faith, new faith, you see. So, because here's the irony. Don't, don't miss this. Some of you are studying the book of Job now. The irony of questioning God is that it honors him. And so, and it turns our hearts away from ungodly despair toward a passionate desire to comprehend him. And something happens in this mysterious cry of the heart 
to the God who is. Do you see it? The I of Psalm 77 becomes you. I will remember your wonders of old, your work, your mighty deeds. The six questions of doubt in verses 7 through 9 become this mighty question of faith in verse 13. What God is great like our God. You see that? I think you have to articulate verses 7 through 9 in order to get to verse 13. You are the God who works wonders. So my trouble, my hand, my soul, my eyelids, my song, it becomes your arm, your arrows, your lightnings, your way, your path, your footprints. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You are the ones who led them. We just saw their hands but you are the ones who led them, Lord. So Asaph walks the path from self-preoccupation to God-reliance through the remembered promises of the Word. The Exodus, the miracle at the Red Sea. And what verse 20 acclaims is that the final arbiter of truth is not what's in Asaph's heart, but what's in God's Word. Some of you saw a very powerful movie that was um, shown uh, in our community Monday and Wednesday, Emmanuel. Four years ago, a racist committed murder at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest AME church in the South. And, and, and two days later, Several family members of the victim stood before the judge and looked to the killer and, and, and spoke forgiveness to this heinous crime. How, how, do they, how could they do that? Psalm 77 tells us, remembered history. They remembered the one who said to his killers, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, so if in the past God could deliver his people from trouble and fear, he can deal with his people today. Remember, remember, Asaph says. It, it means more than just reciting historical facts. It means to experience exodus, to experience the cross in one's own life at that very moment. It means borrowing from God's historical acts of old as a template to interpret my life today. To remember the past is to reformat the present. And that's why we bring our emotions before God in the company of his people. Because we're, we're putting those feelings that are real and we are saying, God, your word is even more real. Your word will have the final say. Your word will be the final arbiter of truth. And, we, and that doesn't happen individually, but corporately. That, that's how a room of individuals becomes a community of faith and love. A life-changing community as that community pursues Christ. That's Psalm 77. 
Let me try to make this practical. Four ways that we can just specifically engage our emotions. Number one, identify. Identify. This isn't magical or novel. Identify means simply trying to describe your reaction you know, to the world God has put you in using the words God has given. And that's what the Bible does constantly, right? In Psalm 77, how does the psalmist feel? Fatigued, sleepless, faint, hopeless, helpless. And, you know, it may take time for you to identify. The answer to the question, what am I feeling right now, you know, might be, you know, I don't know. I have been running around so quickly with my, feels like my head is cut off and I'm just running. I, I don't know. I have to think about that. That's okay. Slow down. See, our emotions like to step on the gas. Slow down. Slow down. Turn off your phone. It's okay. <gasps> what? It's okay. <laughs> breathe, church family, beloved. Breathe, breathe. It's okay. It'll be okay. Really, it's okay. <laughs> Identify. Number two, examine. Examine. So why am I feeling this way? Feeling angry. Why am I feeling this way? Is it, is, is it because my adrenaline spiked? My, my serotonin level dropped? My face flushed? My breath quickened? Well, well, possibly your adrenaline spiked and your serotonin dropped and your face flushed and your breath quickened because your good friend just criticized you publicly out there in the church foyer. And your whole body, from your sweat glands to the blood flow and the capillaries of your lungs, was just pulsing to defend yourself. <laughs> See, your, your body is where your emotions happen. And so your body is the vehicle through which the passion of your soul flows. Your emotions express what we love. So what do I really love? <laughs> what is it that I really love here? Well, I love my ego. That's what I love. Well... Well, let's evaluate that. That's number three. <laughs> Once you've identified that something is happening inside, and you've examined what's going on, and you, then, you're, then you're ready to take the next step, figuring out which emotional aspects are good and godly and which are destructive or selfish. And this is hard. This is difficult. Because you're rarely, you're rarely going to find only, only good in your emotions or only bad. It, 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 instead, you'll almost always find a mix, good and bad, mixed together. <laughs> you have a lot at stake, otherwise, you know, you wouldn't be feeling emotion about it if you didn't, you see? And then act. Act. And there's kind of a threefold notion to this. First, take your body seriously. Take your body seriously. Our, our bodies are not embarrassment. Emotions flow through your body. Pay attention to your body. Uh, in a book that I've referenced, uh, that I'll reference now again, it's called Untangling Emotions by Alistair Groves. He wrote, when diet, sleep, exercise, and rest are in a good place, we can better process the expressions of our hearts. Then he says this. This, this resonated with me. He says, food is the most overused antidepressant. And exercise is the most underused anti-anxiety. 
So take your body seriously. Secondly, turn down the faucet. Turn down the faucet. What, What do we mean by that? Well, it means don't stew. Stewing is the opposite of engaging your emotions with God. So stewing is when you dwell on that. Dwell on that negative emotion. Break, break out of that cycle. How do we do that? Well, it, you don't have to battle yourself out of that place. Just go do something else. So relocate yourself. Go for a walk. Ride your bike. Lift some weights. You know, clean the counter. You know, re- relocate yourself. Find a way to get some distance. Which is why Asaph brought his emotions to this room. See, he needed help. He wanted to turn down the stewing. Don't stew, don't vent. Don't vent. Venting, venting reinforces the bad things in your heart. In, you know, in a physical workout, what you exercise gets stronger. So when you kind of go off on a volcanic vent, you may feel less anger at first, but you speak, you've reinforced something negative about yourself. So it's just, you're meant to go to others with your struggles. And the goal in going to others is this question. Here it is. Will you help me understand what I'm feeling as we go to the Lord together? Will you help me understand what I'm feeling as we go to the Lord together? Take your body seriously. Turn down the faucet. Turn up the faucet. In other words, in other words how can I open the floodgates of my heart toward any good worship? So we've already talked about the importance of paying attention to your body, and we've already talked about the importance of community and and the importance of bringing your emotions with you into worship, both positive and negative. Bring, Bring your negative emotions so that we can help carry them and bring your positive emotions so that we can enjoy some good news, so that we can get a taste of what eternity's like. So, so, you know, bring, bring your... Bring your emotions so that you can talk about them, but remember there are others in the room too, and they brought their emotions. So it's like, it's, it's like family dinner. Yeah, you can have some mashed potatoes, but you can't have all of them. Okay? It's family. And, and when we study Scripture together, or when maybe we respond to our teaching time, you know, let, let's try to go deeper than Well, I like that sermon, or I didn't like that sermon. Okay, let's go deeper than that, right? Um, How about where was I encouraged? You know, where was I challenged? What perhaps was confusing? Uh, What was clarifying? Okay. Uh, In verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 77, you know, where have I been like Asaph? Where have I been? In, in verses, where, was there a moment when I had verse 10 in my heart, this is my grief, is that moment even now? You know, will you help me understand that so we can get, take that to the Lord together? Uh, verses 11 through 20, what other acts in biblical history can I draw from my life in Christ? Here, here's a question. What biblical character would you like to be like if you could choose? And, and I know everybody says, well, Jesus. Okay, I get it. But let's, let's, yes, yes, amen. Okay, now what other character would you like to be? Okay, it's okay. 
And please don't say, you know, Judas or anything like that. Or I want to be like Jezebel. No, you don't. <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> no, 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 no. You know what? For me, it's Joseph in the book of Genesis. Wow, you talk about God's grace. You talk about someone, you talk about emotion. You talk about someone who was wounded and then brought his wound to the Lord. You talk about how God lifted him. I mean, Joseph. He, he really is. He's, he's my guy. Who, who, who would that be for you? You know, would it be, you know, Nehemiah? Would it be Deborah? Would it be Esther? Would it be, would it be um, you know, Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts? You see, my goodness, Scripture is rich. Read their lives, their suffering, their emotion. Every emotion is meant to lead to worship. And one day every emotion will resolve in joy because we worship, this is it, and then I'm done. We worship the God. <laughs> we worship the God who stores our tears in a bottle. Psalm 56, 8. You keep track of all my wanderings. So God knows where you are. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. Come on up, worship team. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. Oh, my. I mean, this is our God. This is our resurrected king. We, we wander around in this, this brief life of ours, and sometimes we're rejoicing, and sometimes we're crying, and always with us is the God who is not disgusted by our emotions. He counts our laughs. He collects our tears. He records our sighs, and he has filled a bottle with our tears, and he will one day turn that water into wine in the in new heavens, in the new earth, at the marriage feast of the Lamb. All we have to offer is a resurrected king. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.